Good morning, NCU. If you are here for NCU days, let me just say this is the best university. And that, that was all special effects. This is the best university. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about a message that I've only been working on this week uh, because I felt the Lord laid on my heart last week. I was in a meeting uh, where a special speaker was speaking to a, a lot of pastors and leaders, uh, former president of, of one of the largest HBCs in our country, uh, and he was talking about how that he used to play ping pong. And he said, before I was a Christian, I actually made money playing ping pong. I was a very good ping pong player. And he said that when I got older, I learned about pickleball. Anyone here play pickleball? He said, I decided I was going to play pickleball because if I was so good at ping pong, how could I not be good at pickleball? And to his horror, he discovered they were two different games. And the skill set he thought he had for ping pong, he said, somehow didn't apply to pickleball. And this was his analogy. He said, the church keeps playing ping pong when they're supposed to be playing pickleball. And they're not effective anymore in the world because they don't understand the game they're actually playing. And of course, I heard this, and, and, and my first thought, and again, he didn't really go deeper in the analogy than that. It was an analogy, not an allegory. But I couldn't help but think that one way you could build this analogy out is that we live in a world today where the world's assumptions about what's true are much further away than what we think are true. When you're playing ping pong, how many of you know the table's a lot closer to you than the floor? And a lot of us are hitting the ball like we're aiming at a table, when what we have to realize is the assumptions are so far away from us now, we're not aiming at a table, we're aiming at a floor. We have to learn how to speak to the culture where it's at. And it was in light of that, I started thinking about how the church today hasn't really focused as much as it should on its prophetic voice. And understand what it means to speak in a prophetic voice in our world. So today I want to talk about exercising your prophetic voice. Now, a prophetic voice is both spiritual in source and it's corrective in nature. And nobody likes a prophet if the prophet's speaking to you. We like prophets if they're speaking to somebody else. Sometimes we'll be in their corner. You go on, you tell them that. We don't like prophets when they're speaking to us because how many know we don't like to be corrected? Uh, I'm going to say correction is still a blessing from God because God's confrontations are meant to be healing, not just judgmental. Even as a college professor and dean here at North Central, there are times that I've had to have what I used to call come-to-Jesus meetings with my students where I would have a student and something had happened and I needed to have a moment of correction with that student. And the point for the correction was always this. I'm not here to cast you out. I'm here to protect you. Because college is a safety net. College is the place where you can fail and you can still resubmit the assignment. You can fail the class and you can still take the class again. College is a safety net. Once you graduate, that safety net goes away. And if you don't learn the lessons you need to learn now while the safety net is here, you might be in trouble when you graduate. Does that make sense? You need correction. And let me just highlight this. You come to college, you're actually being paid to be corrected. That's kind of the point. Because I want to be ready for a world that's going to be harsh to me. 
So I'm in a place where people are going to be kind to me and tell me where I need to improve, where I need to change, where I'm not supposed to do that. In fact, one of the worst examples of correction I ever heard outside of college actually comes from the U.S. military. I had a friend, I grew up Fort Knox, Kentucky. It's my hometown. I had a lot of friends who were in the military, grew up with people in the military, had friends who continue to work there. And one told me the story of something that had recently happened, although now this is years ago. One of the worst things you can do in the military, a lot of people don't realize this, in the military, adultery is actually against the law. Because it could compromise you, right? Because there's information you don't want to have to get out. It could compromise your security. Uh, Sleeping with a subordinate is against the rules. Because you have to be able to have detachment from the people that you lead. So one of the worst things you can actually do in the military is actually commit adultery with the spouse of a subordinate. And so I say that to say, here's what happened one time. There was a general who got so brazen, he decided to have an affair with the wife of one of his sergeants. That is about the biggest no that you can ever have in the military. Because here's the problem. If you are an officer and you're sleeping with the spouses of the people that you could send into battle, there's no reason for them to ever trust any of your orders ever again. It completely destroys trust in the military and the chain of command. Destroys discipline. So this general had an affair with the wives of one of his sergeants. And the affair got so brazen that one day when they were having a military ball at a local high school, the sergeant's wife and the general decided to find a restroom far away from where the ball was so they could have a quick hookup. Now, while they were doing this, there was another wife of another sergeant who needed to go to the restroom. And the restroom close to the ball was filled with women standing in line. She didn't want to wait. So she went looking through the high school for a restroom that was far away. She walked into the restroom where the general and this other woman were. She immediately realized what was going on. They were in a stall. She heard them. She left. She goes and gets her husband, who's another sergeant. This sergeant very wisely goes and gets the colonel. The colonel gathers the entire command staff. They go to the husband who's being cheated on, another sergeant, and they march together to that restroom. The entire command staff and this sergeant form a semicircle around the door. They wait for them to come out. The wife comes out first. The husband takes his wife to the side to have their own conversation. Finally, the general comes out, sees his entire command staff standing around the bathroom, and the colonel says to the general, sir, we would like a word. And the next day, the headline reads in the newspaper, General Resigns. It's just about the worst thing you can do. And I say that not just as an example of confrontation, but we're going to talk about an example of this in Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 11. King David does about the worst thing you can do. While his men are off to war, David stays back as king. David decides to invite the wives of one of his commanders over to the palace, and they spend the night together. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, it is not a love story. It is a one-night stand. And let me highlight, in case you don't know, hookups are never love stories. It's a one-night stand. Uh, He sends her home. That's the end of it, until she finds out she's pregnant. And the problem is her husband has been in the field for months may still be in the field for months. David knows he has a problem because he's the only man in town. 
So he immediately calls the husband back, his name is Uriah, to give a report on how the battle's going, expecting Uriah to go to his house, spend the night with his wife, and no matter what happens, everyone in town will say, well, yeah, that's when it happened. Instead, Uriah sleeps outside in the open like he's still in the field. And when David says to him, why did you do that? Uriah says, how dare I enjoy my house when my men are still in tents? Turns out Uriah is a better commander than David. Now David has a problem. He can't order Uriah to go home, so he sends letters from Uriah to the general, and the letters simply read this, do something to make sure Uriah dies in battle. Uriah is sent on a suicide mission with other men. All the men die. And the report comes back to David. I'm sorry to inform you, Uriah and his unit have been killed in battle. David quickly marries Bathsheba, so that now when she turns out to be pregnant, people could at least assume, well, let's count the months. No one, no one catches on. David totally gets away with it. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The first thing I want to say about a prophetic voice is this. A prophetic voice speaks on behalf of God. A prophetic voice speaks on behalf of God. God noticed David's behavior when no one else did, and he sent Nathan to David. Understand, you can build a life where you successfully hide yourself from other people. You can totally build a life and you can learn over time how to be one person in private and a completely different person in public, but God always sees. Nobody can hide from God. And the judgment of God is still the boundary that's meant to guide our behavior. And immediately someone will protest and say, but hey, you can still be a good person and not believe in God. And yes, you can do good things and not believe in God but you can still believe you could get away with it. A belief in God means you know you can't get away with it. And David comes out to speak to David. Nathan comes out to speak to David on behalf of God. Now, the first time we see Nathan, this is not the first time. Nathan appears in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's when David says to him, I want to build a house for God. I want to build a temple. And Nathan's first words to David are, hey, God's been with you up to this point. By the way, I'm paraphrasing. This isn't the Hebrew. But God has been with you up to this point. I'm sure whatever it is that you want to do, God is with you and go for it. And it turns out Nathan is wrong. That night, the Lord sends a message to Nathan that tells David, you're both wrong. Don't build the temple for me. And Nathan has to go back to David and say to him, you know what I told you yesterday? Turns out God has other ideas. So the first thing we learn about Nathan is this, he's willing to listen to God against his own opinions. Nathan's willing to hear God against his own opinions, against his own best advice, and a prophet who's going to speak on behalf of God to others has to first be able to hear God for themselves. I have to know how to hear God's no for me before I can give God's no to you. Nathan was a man who was already corrected. Nathan comes back to David, and now he says to David, hey, I have this story. And it's about a man in town who was a rich man. He had a lot of lambs, but he lived next to a poor man, a poor man who only had one lamb. This lamb was not a 
uh, a food source for him. This lamb was like a pet. He said, in fact, this lamb was like the man's daughter. The lamb would sleep in his arms. The lamb would eat from his table, drink from his cup. But one day, a traveler came to the rich man's home unexpectedly, and hospitality orders that the rich man serve food to the traveler. But the rich man wasn't expecting this traveler. He didn't have any animals prepared. He didn't want to give up any of his best, so he sends his men over to the poor man's house and takes the poor little lamb from that man to feed that lamb to the traveler. Now, why is he telling this story to David? Because as king, David's job is to administer justice. Here's the thing that's so critical. The two ways you judge a king in the Bible is can they protect the people and can they administer justice? That's how you checklist whether or not you're a good king. David has already been a source of injustice. And yet when David hears this story, he burns with anger. He says to Nathan, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And then one of the greatest confrontations in the Bible, 2 Samuel 12, 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. A prophetic voice speaks on behalf of God. But a prophetic voice also speaks truth to power. A prophetic voice speaks truth to power. David's fury over this act of injustice extended to pronouncing a death sentence. The man who did this deserves to die. Then he offered his real sentence. He must pay back four times what he's taking. Now the irony here is what David has done is so much worse. And can I tell you that sometimes... When we get away with behavior, we actually become harder against other people's behavior because we know we got away with it and we're trying to somehow restore the balance of justice. I'm going to just throw this out here. If you ever find a preacher who's always preaching too hard against the same sin, he's probably trying to restore the balance in his own life. Does that make sense? David's trying to restore the balance. And so Nathan says to him, you are the man. And David realizes the man he just condemned to die was actually him. And as king, he's administered his judgment. Because we're speaking on behalf of God, we're able to speak truth to power because the power we represent is always greater than the power we speak to. And let me say that again. When you're speaking on behalf of God, the power you represent is always greater than the power you speak to. I see right here on our front row the leadership of North Central University. Thank you guys for dressing up. It's so good to see you all. (laughs) President Graham, you are an absolute blessing to this school. Absolutely. And I'm so thankful that you're here. As someone who speaks for myself... As a guest speaker, I could come to Doug Graham and I could say to him, President Graham, I have some opinions about the direction of North Central University, and I'm going to tell you what those are. And I'm giving him my opinion based as a guest speaker, but I'm a guest speaker speaking to the president, right? That's a difference. But if God has a word for Doug Graham, now Doug Graham is just the president, 
But God is the king. When you speak truth to power, you're always representing a power greater than the one that you speak to. And I'm going to tell you the reason why God has prophets is too many times we have leaders who have developed power structures where the only communication they can ever receive is the word yes. They're surrounded by people whose job it is is to say yes to them. And if you have a proper channel structure that now filters out the word no, the only way God can tell you no is to send you someone outside of those channels. If the only channels of communication you have already filter out the word no, God has to send a prophet because prophets always come outside the proper channels. And let me just say this, for you who are leaders, who are going to be leaders, whenever someone gives you a word outside the proper channels, rather than just dismiss it because it didn't come the right way, you need to ask, is this God because I can't hear no anymore? We always speak truth to power. Now, David hears this, and this is the continuation of this message. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's home to you, your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. If this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. A prophetic voice speaks on behalf of God. A prophetic voice speaks truth to power. A prophetic voice speaks justice for the powerless. The prophetic voice speaks justice for the powerless. What is God's complaint to David? His complaint is this. I took you from nothing and I gave you everything. And had that not been enough, I would have even given you more. How dare you take from someone else? And in fact, what's so powerful about this is he identifies that someone else as Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He's not even an Israelite. And in this story, God chooses the side of the Hittite over his own king. And because David is king, would literally have been the Messiah. He's the anointed one. In this story, God chooses the Hittite over his own Messiah. Because God always takes the side of the one who is wronged. God always takes the side of the one who is wronged. The prophet speaks on behalf of God, but God speaks on behalf of the powerless. The prophet speaks on behalf of God, but God speaks on behalf of the powerless. There is no human system that has ever been designed that benefits everyone. There is no human system that has ever been designed that benefits everyone. So God has to speak outside of our systems through prophets to point out those who have been left out. One of my favorite quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who tried to rally the church against Hitler during the 1930s, who died in a concentration camp, says this, Christianity stands or falls 
with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, the pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little, he's writing in his own day in Germany, to make these points clear rather than too much. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense shock the world far more than they are doing right now, Christians should take a stronger stand in favor of the weak rather than considering first the possible right of the strong. As a church, we speak justice for the powerless. But that's not the only thing we have in a prophetic voice because a prophetic voice speaks on behalf of God, speaks truth to power, speaks justice to the powerless, but it also speaks grace before the graceless. It speaks grace before the graceless. David's response is not the response you always get from kings. And let me just say this right here. If you're ever speaking truth to power, you have no reason to, you have no guarantee that the power will ever listen to you. Most of the prophets in the Bible get ignored, and if not ignored, they get killed. But in this story, David responds. What does he say? He says to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Now understand, David still faced a judgment. David's pronouncement as king was the man who had done this should pay four lambs, right? Through the rest of this story, he loses four sons. At least two of the sons, because they did the same thing their dad did, but they didn't repent. There's still judgment for sin, but judgment isn't the same thing as condemnation. There can be cause and effect for your behavior, but it doesn't mean God has thrown you away. You can be forgiven. You can have hope. And here's the thing about prophecy. God doesn't send a prophet to someone unless he's given them the opportunity to change. Because God doesn't waste his breath. If God's going to do what he's going to do, regardless of what you do, there's no reason for God to tell you. But even when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and God and Jonah doesn't give them any hope, and he just says, hey, you're going to die in 40 days, good luck with that. They repent anyway. God forgives them anyway. And Jonah's big complaint to God was, I didn't even want to warn them, because I knew that if I warned them and they repented, you would forgive them, because that's just how you are. God never gives a word of warning that it's not also an invitation to change. Prophecy speaks grace before the graceless. There's always grace for those who have not shown grace. There's always grace for those who have not shown grace. And then finally, a prophetic voice does what? It speaks truth to power. It speaks justice for the powerless. It speaks grace before the graceless. And this is the big one. It also speaks Jesus to the world. It speaks Jesus to the world. Understand that in this story of Nathan confronting David, I have examples of all these things, but it is an Old Testament story. I don't have an example of him telling David about Jesus. David is actually the ancestor of Jesus. But what I do have is I do have the story of Jesus that contains everything I've mentioned up till now. 
To speak of Jesus is to speak of God for God because he's God in the flesh. To speak of Jesus is to speak truth to the powerful because he's king over all. To speak of Jesus is to speak justice for the powerless because he gives us a kingdom of justice. To speak of Jesus is to speak grace for the graceless because he forgives us of our sins. There is no greater prophetic voice the church has than when it bears witness to Jesus. So our prophetic voice has to be centered on the witness of Jesus before the world. I don't have time to read this verse, but I just want to highlight Peter, Acts chapter 10. In his meeting with the Roman centurion Cornelius, he speaks truth to power. But in that story, he acknowledges that the message of Jesus is a story for everyone. That Jesus has been made Lord over all. That Jesus is now judge of the living and the dead, but in Jesus we have the promise that if you believe, you will be forgiven of your sins. Jesus is the message of a prophetic church. I've talked to you very briefly this morning about what a prophetic voice speaks, but as we close in prayer, I want to talk about the first thing we need to do. Before a prophetic voice speaks, a prophetic voice has to listen. Before a prophetic voice speaks, a prophetic voice has to listen because we don't speak for ourselves. If I speak for me, I'm giving you my opinion. That's not the same as speaking on behalf of God. But to speak for God, I have to hear God. I have to be able to listen to God's word. If I'm going to represent God to others, if I'm going to speak truth to the power, I have to hear the word of God. I have to know what God has said. If I'm going to speak justice for the powerless, if I'm going to speak grace for the graceless, I also have to listen to the world's needs. I have to know what's going on in the world. I have to know where people are hurting. I have to be able to see the people that our world counts as villains as if those are the people in greatest need of God's grace. Right now we can talk a lot about terrorism. But I want us to always remember the first terrorist the church ever faced, a man who acknowledged that he dragged people out of their homes and he tortured them, was Paul, the greatest missionary the church ever had. We have to see the villains of our world as people that God can change. We have to listen to God's voice. We have to listen to the world's needs. And we have to listen to the Holy Spirit. Open yourself up to the Spirit's voice. Listen in prayer. I want to ask you as we close, how many want to speak with a prophetic voice? Then I want to invite you to come and listen. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to start by beginning with our time of prayer and fasting that we do every Friday. But this morning, I just want to ask everyone that will, let's spend a few moments in prayer simply saying to God, I want to hear you. I want to hear you in your word. I want to see the love you have for this world. I want to see this world's needs through your eyes so I can speak on behalf of you. Father, I want to thank you for this entire group. God, I thank you that you have called all of us, Lord, to be a part of a prophetic community, a community that speaks to this world what the world needs to hear, a community that bears witness to Jesus. Lord, help us to be your voice Help us first to have open ears and open hearts. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite everyone that will to come down for a time of prayer.